So the book of Esther. It's a challenging book in some respects because the book of Esther doesn't contain the name of God. doesn't appear to have sacrifices in it. Uh, prayer is referred to very indirectly. It's not even specifically mentioned. So what do we do with the book of Esther? Well, one, way to, one way to begin is by asking the questions that journalists ask. When journalists are writing, uh, they used to be taught uh, how to write in this way. Get the facts. Who, what, why, where, and when. And these need to be answered in order for people to have the facts. Then the story can unfold. And so we can ask these questions as we approach Esther chapter 1. Who? It's answered in verse 1. Which one? The last part of the verse. Where? Is answered in verse 2. When? Did this happen? Verse 3. What happened? Uh, verses 3 and 4. Last part of verse 3. And then verse 4. Then what? Verse 5 tells us. And then this is unpacked in verses 6 to 7 with very specific language. And then in verse 8, there's a surprising command. And then finally in verse 9, a statement that answers who and where in a way that contrasts the rest. So who, which one, where, when, what happened, then what, and then a command, and then a strange ending to this, to this section. These questions build as we're going along, and it actually uh, unpacks a bigger story than we thought. There's something bigger happening here than we may have thought at the beginning. Uh, the book of Esther begins with uh, words that speak of historical narrative. Uh, in the original, it's indicating that this is a, an event that happened in history. It's something that we need to know. It's part of redemptive history. Uh, came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus. Um, don't trip over uh, saying that name. It it's, doesn't exactly trip off of uh, our tongues. Uh, but it's, as was mentioned before, it's kind of an insult. He's, he's being called King Hedek. Uh, the book of Esther is actually kind of like the Babylon Bee of uh, the ancient times. Uh, it's a satire because it's written uh, in the times when King Ahasuerus was defeated in the great victory that he's trying to build up to in this chapter. And so the people knew that, and they knew that this was kind of a, a way of poking fun at, at King Headache, King Ahasuerus. He's actually King Xerxes. He's mentioned in Ezra chapter 4. Uh, in our Bibles, he's, he's got the same name, but it's King Xerxes. Uh, he is uh, King Ahasuerus. Uh, the Ahasuerus... Uh, which one? The one who reigned over 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia. So now we know where in history we find this man. He's in Ezra chapter 4 and verse 6, but he's also here. Uh, King Headache, King Xerxes, reigned over 127 provinces. The smaller number is used to accent the greatness of the number of provinces. It's a way of showing like how big these provinces really are uh, because there's so many of them. Uh, scholars like to argue about the, the territories that are in view, but the smaller number is used to accent the, the volume of them. And he reigned from Ethiopia, which is modern Pakistan, to, uh, I mean, from India, which is modern Pakistan, to Ethiopia, which is modern Sudan. 
uh, where a lot of things are going on today. So from Pakistan to Sudan or from India to Ethiopia, a vast territory. Uh, that's where he reigned. And it was in those days when he sat on the throne of his kingdom in Shushan, the citadel. The citadel is a place that's built up. And so the king is actually dwelling in a place that's built up, that is elevated so that he might be uh, lifted up and, and exalted in his kingdom. Uh, this king is power hungry. And so we're going to see as we go through this first chapter that King Hede, King Ahasuerus, was seeking earthly power. He was seeking earthly power in a way that directly contrasts with the way that our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, came to bring the kingdom. And so we learned something about the relationship of earthly kingdoms to the heavenly kingdom that's brought about by the Lord Jesus Christ. As we consider King Ahasuerus and the way that he seeks power and his lust for power and the way that he oppresses people in contrast to the Lord Jesus Christ. It happened in the third year of his reign. Uh, we tell, we're told in verse 3, that's when. Uh, he made a feast for all of his officials and servants, the powers of Persia and Media, the nobles and the princes of the provinces being before him. Why is he doing this? Well, to, to cut to the chase, uh, King Ahasuerus wanted Greece. He wanted to get uh, his, as many people behind him on this campaign for Greece as he could. This was basically a power banquet. It's going to extend for a long time, but it's a power banquet. He's trying to gather support for his campaign to Greece. And of course, we know from, from history that he lost. And so that's how this, this chapter begins to unfold the, the irony of this power-seeking man who, who lost this battle. But in the third year of his reign, he makes this feast for all of his officials and all of his servants, uh, the powers of media, uh, Persia and Media, uh, nobles, princes, and he shows the riches of his glorious kingdom and the splendor of his excellent majesty for six months. 180 days. That is an incredible feast. That is an incredible uh, feast for all of his officials and servants, an incredible power lunch that goes on for six months. This man has a lot of earthly wealth. And God has ordained for this to be the case. He has ordained for this man to have this earthly wealth. Now, in the history of redemption, we find out from God's words given to his people that it was very important that the people of God understood justice that they understood the law of God and how it was to be applied in civil affairs so that people would not oppress one another in an unjust way. This man, a complete pagan, has no uh, desire to follow those standards of justice. He is going to do exactly the opposite. He is willing to oppress in a way that, that impacts, as we find out when we get down to verse 9, even his wife. But he has a lot of power. Why? Why would God's people be in a land where such a king was operating? Well, we found out as we read 1 Kings 9, 
as we were told that the people of God were supposed to follow the law of God. And if they didn't, uh, they would be oppressed by other nations. God says this again and again throughout redemptive history. He says it to his people. And lo and behold, this is what's happening. The people of God are in a land where actually they've been in this land for so long that they have started to uh, stop practicing the sacrifices. You barely have the word of God. Uh, The word God uh, is referred to indirectly. God is behind the scenes. He's working, but you don't hear his name. They have completely been absorbed by this earthly power in order so that in order that God might show uh, his providential work. You see, we, we in our own lives experience God's providence as he works all things out for our glory. Uh, those who are called according to his purpose, he does strange things. He leads us on strange, uh, what we consider to be rabbit trails, curves in the road. I was looking for my notes on this passage. I've preached on this this book a couple of times. Couldn't find them. Why does that happen? It happens because of God's providence. It happens because of the way that God works in a in a fallen world. And we need to understand that his sovereignty even extends to someone like King Headache, who's able to use his power to uh, cause this, this power lunch to go on for six months. He's working out his sovereign plan. We find out as we look through the book of Esther that there, this place where King Headache rules is a dangerous place for the Jews. It's a place where Jews are actually threatened, that where they are in great danger. As the king gives power to a certain man, and he gives that, that man uh, freedom to uh, follow the seed of the serpent and attempt to wipe out God's people. Again, part of his providential care, but also something that shows us uh, the way in which the Lord Jesus Christ entered into this world to bring a kingdom that operates differently, a kingdom that doesn't operate according to these patterns. We need to know that the God in heaven sees and he takes care of his people. Uh, The book of Esther is governed by these feasts. There are two of them here in our first chapter, and there are two of them in the middle of the book, and there are two of them at the end, where the Feast of Purim is is introduced, a very important feast that the Jews still uh, celebrate to this day. Feasts, that's part of the structure of the book. But this feast, this power lunch that that is taking place, uh, it's more than a lunch because it extends from day to day to day to day. He shows the glory, riches of his glorious kingdom and the splendor of his excellent majesty for half a year. And then at the end, he makes a feast lasting seven days because he's a generous king. He's going to provide for the little people. Anybody that's living in the capital city, from great to small, he's going to open his doors for them to be part of this other feast. He's had the, the power uh, feast that, that is seeking support for his campaign to Greece, and now he's going to let the little people in. Uh, the court of the king's palace, it's, it's like a museum in there. 
but it's not like your ordinary museum. It's a museum where the things that you see are actually available for you to touch and use. There are so many different things in this place. Verse 6 tells us there were white and blue linen curtains fastened with cords of fine linen, purple on silver rods and marble pillars, couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement, alabaster, turquoise, and white and black marble. And then there's the vessels that they use. Persian vessels were individually designed. They're like snowflakes. No one vessel is the same. They're all different. You're being given vessels to drink from. Each vessel is different from the other. Royal wine in abundance. They're pouring the wine and it's going on for seven days. Everybody can be part of this. But then there's this strange aspect of this of generosity of the king. He has to demonstrate, according to the law, that you can drink as much as you want. He doesn't just say, come in, help yourself. You know, my place is yours. You know, just you know, pour as much as you want. You have to follow the law. The law of the Medes and the Persians. It's actually dictating how much people can drink. They have to have a law saying that drinking is not compulsory. Do according to each man's pleasure by law. Later on, we find out in the book that this law of the Medes and the Persians actually uh, applies to the king as well. This law of the Medes and the Persians is, is a very significant part of the structure of this place. They are oppressed in certain ways by the law of the Medes and the Persians. This law that enables so much uh, drinking, so much generosity. Now think about that. People are drinking as much as they, they, they want for seven days. That's you know, quite an environment. <clears throat> We're going to find out how that affected things uh, as we go on in chapter one. But uh, it's important that we recognize that uh, this is the way that things happen in an unjust world, a world that is operating according to earthly power. And it is operating in a way that actually holds down people. Uh, we see this in a quite significant way, but as we see that Queen Vashti has a separate feast. She's in a separate place in the royal palace that belongs to King Headache, her husband. He is having his feast and he's having his feast with the great and small people. She has a feast for the women and she cannot participate in the feast that, that is, uh, that is for the men. That is until she is invited. And we'll see more of that later. But I want you to understand that this is the way in which this uh, kingdom works. This is the way in which this kingdom is structured. It's operating according to the power structures of the world, the desire to, to capture Greece and the desire to follow the laws of the Medes and the Persians and the desire to show off wealth. All of this is part of the way that the uh, king's uh, kingdom works. Contrast that with the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ came into a world where the powers that exist, appeared to be uh, able to oppress even him. He had to escape down to Egypt. The Lord Jesus Christ was in danger in his earliest days. He comes into the world and 
uh, we're told in uh, the Gospel of John that the, his own people didn't even receive him. The Jews did not receive their Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he came into this world and in this way. He came into the world and he was part of this world that is structured in this way. This world of power-hungry people, people who show off their wealth, people who oppress one another, who a man who oppressing his own wife, the queen. And the Lord Jesus Christ came into this world in a way that, that modeled a different kingdom. He began to speak of uh, those who were meek, who would inherit the earth. He began to speak of those who were uh, marginalized, who were, who were poor, who, who were uh, blessed. The Lord Jesus Christ began to uh, reach out to people that were marginalized by the people around them, lepers and blind people, people who are in the category of being dead, according to the, the Jewish way of thinking. They were in the same category as lepers. They were basically dead people. And the Lord Jesus Christ healed them, listened to them, and provided for them. And they became, uh, some of them, his disciples. And the Lord Jesus Christ, who came into this world in this particular way, uh, came into a world that's full of danger, a world that was just as dangerous as, as Persia is for the Jewish people at the time of Esther. And the Lord Jesus Christ came into this world of danger in order to submit himself to his Father's will, in order to die on a cross, in order to obtain uh, for us a standing in a kingdom that operates differently. The Lord Jesus Christ came to cause us to be part of uh, a different type of a feast. When we take the Lord's Supper, we receive the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ given to us uh, by, the, the, by the Spirit as the Lord Jesus Christ is our, our source of food. And we receive nourishment and strength that enables us to be part of a kingdom that cannot be shaken, a kingdom that operates differently, but a kingdom that is forever because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ applied to us by the Spirit. The Lord Jesus Christ is the one uh, who is proclaimed in this marriage supper of the Lamb that we read about in Revelation 19. He's the one who is, has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. King Headache will bow to King Jesus. And yet the way that the Lord Jesus Christ comes into this world is the is the model for the way in which we live in this world. You see, it's easy for us to try to grasp for power, to look to those who are powerful and to somehow admire them, hold them up and think that they have arrived. And yet King Headache is being uh, satirically represented in the book of Esther. He is one who has lots of power, but no wisdom. He doesn't understand how the sovereign God is viewing him, his creator, the one who keeps breath in his lungs. And the Lord Jesus Christ came to give us a different way of relating to this uh, fallen world and to the people in it. He began to lift up those who were marginalized, those who were held down. He began to lift up women in his earthly ministry. He began to show us a different way of seeing people who are made in God's image. And the Lord Jesus Christ, in contrast to King Headache, is uh, one who brings about uh, a kingdom that 
operates completely differently. As we go through the book of Esther, we'll see this in lots of different ways, but it's important for us to recognize that this is the same one to whom we are being conformed. And when those things happen in your life that are, that are uh, difficult for you to make sense of, those things that seem to be rabbit trails and, and uh, curves in the road, we need to remember that the Word of God says this uh, in Romans 8, verse 28. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Through those things that happen in your life, those things that seem to be rabbit trails and curves in the road, those things that are providences of God that you can't quite understand. God is working in your life to make you like Jesus Christ, to conform you to his image, that you might not reflect a fallen world, a world that operates according to the the whims of uh, leaders who have power and wealth, but a world that operates according to the pattern of the character of Jesus Christ. And that's what God is doing in our life, in the secret uh, providences of his care for us, in the way that he cared for his people in the days of Esther. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the great power and rule of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you for the way in which his power and rule is demonstrated in a fallen world by people being made like him, people who begin to operate differently than the world around them, people who quietly and under the noses of those who seek power and who have wealth and who seek to oppress are behaving quite differently because they are being formed within the image of Jesus Christ. And we thank you that you are even doing this through the course of strange providential events that take place in our lives that in all of these things, we are being made after the image of your son, the Lord Jesus, the one who is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, the one who has this great marriage supper to which we are invited, which we begin to taste in the supper. And we thank you that you care for us in a way that lifts up those who are downtrodden, lifts up those who are needy and marginalized in the world, that you are building a kingdom that cannot be shaken kingdom that operates completely differently from the patterns of this world. And we thank you that you show us this by contrast in the book of Esther so that we might see it in our lives. May we contrast the world. May we contrast our former selves. May we be different than we were last week because of the work of the spirit of Jesus Christ making us like him. Please rule us in that way. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.